Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of both fiction and nonfiction titles. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm speaking with author Jason Summer, a poet whose Shmuel's Bridge, following the tracks to Auschwitz with my survivor father, is being published by Imagine Publishing, an imprint of Charles Bridge, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, Jason. Hello. Would you start us off with an excerpt from your book? Sure. Um, the selection I'll read is from chapter one, which is in the book's present moment. Um, in it, I've been showing my father images, videos, and photographs, mainly from our 2001 journey to Eastern Europe. I'm trying to revive his memory, uh, which is failing. Um, at the heart of that trip was an effort to find the site of his younger brother's attempt uh, to escape from the train taking him to Auschwitz. My uncle... I may be the only image that is left of him, a partial one at that. My father often said his kid brother was like me. I was like him, rather. Tall like him. Looked like him. Even my manner sometimes, he would remark, was so like his brother's, though how could that be? I took another packet from the shoebox, labeled Budapest in my mother's precise hand. My father reached for it, but I asked him to wait, to put it by for another time. I opened my tablet. I selected first an internet capture of a bridge a railway bridge over a river. My father looked at it, then at me. Do you recognize it? I asked him. He leaned in toward the screen and looked hard, but gave no sign. I called up another picture I had found online, or rather two identical sepia photographs joined side by side for a stereopticon viewer. What do you think? The same bridge from 1919. The Germans are rebuilding it after destroying it in the First World War. I have the caption in another file. He could only tell me that the bridges were alike. And that was a beginning. It wouldn't require him admitting that he didn't remember, which he avoided saying. I wanted him to come along with me. I was trying to bring him slowly. One last image, not 1919 and not 1991. Again the bridge, the same one, but standing near the rails on some checker plate with a crisscross of steel behind him is my father. Poland, I said to him. We were there in 2001. I am behind the camera. That's my shadow on the ground. My father moves into the kitchen, takes some grapes from the bowl, and looks at me. So, are you going out? No, Dad, I thought we'd have a look at the video on the computer. We left off around Munkach. Okay, Pashli, Pashli, he says as he walks over to the small table by the door, crowded with equipment, screen and tower and printer. I seat him and take up the mouse. I have begun skipping certain scenes in the replays. The bridge we searched for and found, the brickyard where his family was put on the train, the footage I took in Auschwitz. The video resumes in Kustanovice, his home village. He is unsure sometimes of what exactly he is looking at. This is outside your village, I say. That's an old man who knew your father. That's me and you and Eva Kalenya. Oh, you know so well. I am glad you take such an interest. He lights up with joy as he recognizes the view from the site of the hut in which he was born. In the blue distance are the foothills of the Carpathians. He turns to me and says, as he said earlier today and yesterday, this is a precious treasure. You must give me a copy. This is your copy, Dad. It's on your machine there, right on the desktop, and everyone will be able to play it. We view the tapes for half an hour or so, and I notice him shifting in the chair, so I stop and say we can look at more later. Yes, please, later. He gets up, drifts into the kitchen, has a little cornbread and milk. He goes back to his room, to the bathroom, comes back, 
and asks several times about the schedule for synagogue services. Then he sits down at the dining room table and cries. He only shakes his head when I ask him why. Thank you, Jason. And not to leave our audience hanging too much before they go out and get a copy of your book. Uh, did you ever find out why he was crying at that particular moment? No. Um, no, I think it was just a residual effect of having seen pictures of the, the place he was born, um, which he has seldom had an opportunity to see uh, since that area uh, of the what became the Ukraine was under Soviet control for so long. He, um, so he was moved, I think, at seeing that and all the memories that it that it brought back, um, even in vague form. So you mentioned a little bit before you read the excerpt uh, about Shmuel, whose name is obviously in the title of the book. Could you talk a little bit about who Shmuel was? He was my father's youngest brother. Uh, my father has two brothers. And uh, uh, Shmuel was a, a protector of my father. He was younger, but a, a big, able sort who had a real connection with the forests around Munkach, around Kustanovicha, and um, a, a feeling for animals. He was kind of a, a hero figure in several ways, both to my father growing up and also um, to me, because he became a kind of symbol of, of resistance. He was the one who tried who tried and, and failed to get away from the um, Germans uh, on that transport. And so he was somebody I was curious about for a long time. But as with a lot of Holocaust memories, it took a while before um, the survivors were willing to share the details of what they knew of what had happened. And uh, forgive me, what specifically happened on, on the bridge that you referred to as Shmuel's bridge? Shmuel, uh, in the uh, freight car, finds a way to get the mesh off the uh, window, and he waits for a an opportunity, which is a river that the train crosses and tries to uh, jump into the river. They actually back up the train to make sure that he doesn't escape, and they machine gun him from the train uh, on the bank of the river that he gets out of. And, and where was your father at the time that his brother was killed? My father was at that moment in a labor, forced labor camp, I believe, in um, outside of Budapest on the island of Chepel. And your father, who survived the war, uh, you know, came to the United States. He was, you know, I think it's fair to say a renaissance man. He was an athlete. He was a dancer. After he got to the States, he got his college degree while he was working full time. He became a successful teacher and was actually named National Teacher of the Year at one point. What would you like the listeners to know most about your father? Uh, his, well, he would identify himself as a teacher of language. Uh, he knows 10 languages, and it's impossible to go down the street with him even now without him engaging in conversation with uh, a variety of people, no matter what they're speaking, nearly. Uh, and he was, you know, he's dedicated to teaching. That's all he wanted to do. In displaced persons camp, um, even without an education himself, he taught uh, the survivor children what he could. Like he's alive to this moment, you know, and he's he's a very vital figure. He was also, I don't know, resourceful. He keeps emphasizing his luck, but he was resourceful. And uh, he kept moving. Uh, he didn't trust 
that he was going to survive unless he got out of the situations, the various situations that he was in. So he escaped from a labor camp. Uh, the other survivors in my family, um, my Aunt Lily and her husband, uh, my father's brother, Harry, they always identified him as somebody who might come through. Even when they were separated after the war, they thought they, thought they would find him again. Uh, people kept saying that when I'd encounter survivors who knew him uh, from, the, from the area. They would say, oh, we expected if anybody would survive that your father would. So I, I was sort of wondering about that because obviously there are people who physically survived, but after emerging from the horrors of the Holocaust um, were completely broken and, and found it very difficult to function. And it sounds like your father's family saw something what he was like uh, before the Nazis that led them to the feeling that if anyone was going to make it through, it was him. So I'm wondering if you can speak to, you know, what there was about who he was growing up before that sort of enabled or helped create that sort of resilience. Well, for one thing, the lack of calories. He often says that uh, at labor camp, when people who had middle class upbringings, much superior to his, had a harder time. He was used to hardship um, and he was used to hard work. He was done with school in, I don't know, fourth grade and, and was apprenticed very soon after to a bicycle mechanic, but did he heavy labor all the time to uh, help his family survive and had born with uh, anti-Semitism in the area uh, where he lived from, a, you know, a, from childhood. So the extent of the cruelty may have been a shock to him, the fact that there was now no limit on it, but the violence was not altogether strange or startling. Um, and he was inured to some of it. This is not to say he wasn't affected by all of that. Um, he, he is resilient. He was resilient, but he's also marked by it, scarred by it. So you chose as an epigraph a Yiddish proverb, one may tell the truth about one's own father. Do you talk about that choice? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, if my father were reading again, I don't know whether I could write this, I could have written this book. Um, there is in it the contending with my father also, um, contending with his damage. And um, it, it was difficult to, to do sometimes felt like telling, you know, telling tales out of school in a way, telling the truth and all the truth needed some kind of permission. <laughs> a Yiddish proverb uh, helps, but um, the sense that I was not writing with him as an audience was also helpful to me uh, because I wanted to tell the, the whole story of every Holocaust family, every family for which the Holocaust is a kind of master story. Um, has uh, their issues dealing with that, living under that shadow, and dealing with the people who are scarred by it. It's just, it's just almost always, in my experience, the case. And you write about the fact that when you were growing up, one of the prominent features of your relationship with your father is his anger. Could you talk a little bit about that? No, I think when so much is taken away from somebody, there's going to be anger. And um, I think he, he felt once he had come through, 
I imagine he felt once he had come through all that he'd come through that that he wanted an easier time of it. And America was not in uh, an easy time necessarily being a, a refugee and, um, you know, just having a family was was difficult. They had other sorts of challenges for him that he didn't have the kind of um, patience uh, he might have had a, had he had an easier time of, of his own life. I, I, I don't, uh, you know, it's been a long time coming to a place where I understand more about why that anger was there. Uh, he was less than 10 years from labor camp, <laughs> you know, when he met me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and had the, just the difficulties of learning. He knew, you know, five languages, but none of them were English. And, and he arrived on these shores without a penny to his name and, and uh, not even the language. So there was a lot of frustration, I think. And the grief, the unacknowledged, undealt with grief of the losses that he'd experienced in, in Europe, which translated as grief will uh, of that sort uh, into anger. And how old were you when you felt that the relationship you had with your father was really sort of firmly on, on, on a good track to develop the sort of loving relationship that you write about so movingly in the book? Oh, it was later, you know, I mean, the, the trip itself, taking that together, cemented something that that was, you know, in the offing always, but on and off as things are between fathers and sons, I think, ordinarily without factoring in the Holocaust. But, you know, after that trip, though before it, it as well, I, I came, you know, we came to accept who we were individually. And made some peace with it. Part of it was I was writing poems that, in part, he wanted written. He wanted some names mentioned and remembered. And for him, as, as for a few other people in the world these days, you know, poetry was a way of making things permanent. And I think that did something to um, uh, mend those things in our relationship that needed mending. So the trip you took with him was back in 2002. Mm -hmm. How long after the trip did you have the idea of, of telling the story? Well, I had told parts of the story all along. In you know, I write poems, but and they are mainly narrative poems. So I had been dealing with uh, pieces of the story. It was uh, in the face of the alteration to my father's memories that that began to become evident that I thought I needed to make these as permanent as writing can make them. Uh, he's done some work with the, with, you know, recording memories of his own, but there was something particular about the trip that I think illuminated, not, not just our relationship, but uh, I think we made some discoveries about our, about each other. And I certainly came closer to his story in ways that I, that I couldn't before just being on the ground that he'd traveled, seeing what it was. I remember just arriving at his village and looking out and, and understanding immediately how different his childhood was than mine. It was, you know, it's a really basic, even now, very, very rural in a way that's 
I, I suppose it's parallel to American rural settlement, but it seemed even uh, less of a mark on the landscape made by people than uh, than I'd seen before. And was there something about the process of translating what you had begun to do in narrative poems into a prose nonfiction narrative that surprised you in retrospect or as you were going through it? Yes. I mean, many things. First of all, the I don't know, I, I'll end up rhapsodizing about the the, the, the uh, joys of prose, but you get to there's so much constriction in poetry in a way. In prose, you get to say so much about background and discover for yourself so much about even landscape and, and how that uh, impresses itself on people. Um, but to get the fullness of a, of a scene down in all the amplitude that, that you can in prose that you really can't even in a narrative uh, poem forced me to make new discoveries about, about things such as I just spoke of, you know, just walking out and seeing what he saw as a child and, and being able to render that a little bit in a fuller version was both a, a product of having been there and, and seen it, but also a product of understanding that to bring it to a reader, I had to bring as much of it as I could, um, much more than I than I possibly could in a, in a poem. And based on your experiences, and uh, I'll apologize because it's going to be clear that this is an unfair question. But <laughs> any advice that you would give to uh, adult children of survivors who are dealing with not only the complex parent-child dynamics, but also you know having a parent who has gone through you know the trauma that ho all Holocaust survivors have gone to to differing degrees. It's hard to say. Uh you know, I had both an, I had an advantage in that I was looked to by these survivors as somebody who was obliged to carry the story because he could. I was a writer. You know, I had my father say to me, write about this, honor this guy. Um, he had a, a special place in his heart for a, a, a man who carried water for the battalion of slave laborers uh, that he worked with in Chappell. And I remember him saying to me, sitting down and saying, you know, I want you to write about this, which allows uh, an exchange of uh, empathy, sympathy, a real sinking into uh, his life. And I, I think for a, a child of a survivor, you know, it's a cliche to say, you know, be open and listen um, if um, you're your parent or other survivor is willing to speak. But also, I don't know, you have to establish your own self in a way that's secure enough to open up to the idea that you're going to take in and understand a life that's much harder than yours has ever been. And because of, uh, in part because of Jewish culture, understand also that that life having gain something, some perspective through suffering, is going to be, um, in certain ways, more authentic than yours. And you have to be able to accept that and, and, and strike sort of, uh, some sort of balance with it. Ha make a space for your own life, of course, and make a space for your own pleasure. Uh, it's a question of balance and, and arriving at, at at that balance where you listen to your your survivor 
very openly and also make a space for your own life to balance against that that huge experience that's so proximate to yours but not yours thank you jason thank you for your time and thank you for this remarkable book thank you thank you for having me and thank you listeners the book again is shmuel's bridge following the tracks to auschwitz with my survivor father published by imagine publishing an imprint of charles bridge please join us again soon for our next lit cast <laughs>